Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark in the hit TV show, Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite, the four mindset shifts for senior leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there, my name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia. Also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, this guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dolph is uh, just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership. My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of thebeardclub.com. And I'd just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Apjohn, as well as Davis, aka The Strategy Man. And if I'm going to describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous, deep, and conscious. And that's exactly what you need for leadership right now. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, original member of the Jamaican Bobsled team, three-time Olympian, author, speaker, philanthropist, he is one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet, an amazing interviewer, but at the same time, an amazing speaker. Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm a futurist, executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead, and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are going to be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status, taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise, genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Berga, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I Call Bullshit, Live Your Life, Not Somebody Else's. Dov Barron, to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there, I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations. Hi there, my name is Rick Barker. I am the founder of the Music Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Bilyeu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well thought out ideas, often counterintuitive, which is what 
makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter. Here's what I'm curious about, the future of mankind. The ethics of our ability to manipulate not only our own biology, but the future generations as well. And politically, there's also the consideration of genetic bioweaponry. There's a lot to talk about on this one, it's a big one. I'm Dov Barron, I am the Dragonist, and I'm your host here on Curiosity Bites. To find out how you can hire me as a speaker or strategist for your organization, simply go to DovBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. This episode is brought to you, of Curiosity Bites rather, is brought to you by MagCast. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you're a coach, content expert, emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if you, there was a proven way for you to increase both your perceived authority and professional status in the eyes of your market, and to do so all at once? This is your way to going from being invisible to getting a meeting with anyone. To find out more, go to magcast.co, M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot co, C-O. Our first-time publishers are creating thriving magazine businesses. All right. Let me tell you about the person that you're about to eavesdrop in on our conversation with. He is a technology futurist, geopolitical expert, sci-fi novelist, uh, keynote speaker, a man the media are lining up to speak to. Yes, Jamie Metzl is a technology and healthcare futurist, geopolitical expert, novelist, entrepreneur, media commentator, senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. And in 2019, he was appointed by the World Health Organization as an expert on, for the advisory committee on developing global standards for governance and oversight in human genome editing. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome the author of many books, some fiction and some non-fiction, and with his latest non-fiction effort called Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering for the Future of Humanity, Jamie Metzl! We're all, we're all at home, so you, you can't hear the crowds roaring, but I know they're there. Absolutely, they're all there. Listen, mate, I, again, I want to, before I even start, I wanted to just thank you for, for being with us. I know that uh, you've been on CNN and you're doing your stuff with Singularity University and you're, you know, you're an in-demand guy right now. And this is, your expertise is highly in-demand, but we're going to just take it off track for a minute. And where we, is that all right? Please, anywhere. I'm okay, here so and, taking and it off track for a minute, the I, question I, I want to ask you is, sorry. I love your intro because oh, thank you. everyone's stressed. We need to be joyous. I mean, exactly. Yes, we have to bring joy and smarts and togetherness and everything. So I fully on. agree. Thank you for that. So tell me, what do you find yourself most curious about? Oh, and, 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 and this might be sort of a new thing for you, but it might be something that's always been with you. No, 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 no. Since I was a little kid, I have been intensely curious about everything. I mean, my mother, and I thank God for my mother, because she was one of those moms who's, who I would always ask all these questions, like what would happen if a, you know, if a shark and a killer whale got into a fight, who would win? 
there's thousands and thousands of questions. I've always been intensely, intensely curious, and I've always asked the questions of why, and I've always tried to pull the pieces together, just to look behind just the, the world, uh, the world that we see. And yes, there are times like, uh, like now where we all need to be really curious about these challenges that are just in, in front of our, our faces or hopefully not inside of our noses and our lungs. Um, we also need to be thinking now about these bigger questions because we're going to get through this crisis and the world is going to look a lot different. Yes, and We need absolutely. to be having a lot of curiosity about what that world may look like and then what's our role in imagining it and, and building it. And that gets us way beyond the realm of just this crisis or treatments or vaccines into the, the thoughts of the world, the kind of yeah. world we want to live in and the kind of world we want to build. I think, um, you know, I, I named this show Curiosity Bites for that reason. I, I studied religious philosophy, philosophy, psychology, quantum physics, metaphysical studies, all these different things that I've been fascinated with uh, for much of my life, including neurosciences and biology and all those kinds of things. And, and I'm always been like you, I, you know, I've always been deeply curious and wanting to know. And the answer is always seems to just come back to, well, people will say, well, you know, what we need is more love. Well, what I see is that people murder in the name of love, yeah. right? And when we need more God, well, people murder in the name of religion, but people don't murder in the name of curiosity. And so curiosity to me seems to be this wonderful cure that it's, it's, it's the only way to break down our biases. And that's what I was fascinated with. How can we break down the bias? And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. Now, I will stay as a sort of preemptive uh, to this conversation. Um, Jamie and I <laughs> took a long time to be able to get together to do this. Uh, we had to book months and months in advance and Again, we appreciate him being with us. Um, but of course, when the show was booked, we were not talking about COVID-19 or coronavirus or any of those things. But needless to say, obviously, that is right at the top of the, uh, of the, the mind right now. So we are going to go there and, and talk about some of those things. And in many ways, I feel like curiosity is even the key here. You know, I just don't, can't see anything that curiosity doesn't isn't the, the key for that lock so can we can we start there and, and just go into this because i mean first of all i want i want to you tell us about you because hold on a second um paths of life they wind i mean and we end up in weird places but you served on the u the u.s national security council state department senate, um, senate foreign relations committee um, you're a human rights officer for the United Nations in Cambodia. You've written fiction, nonfiction, um, and this new book, Hacking Darwin. And you were appointed to the World Health Organization, as I talked about before. Um, and suddenly, you are a megastar. <laughs> I mean, if Jake Tapp is talking to you and you haven't got your pants on, things have really moved forward. Mm. <laughs> So, you know, who, who knows, but, I, but definitely like you, I've been on this path of, of curiosity and of putting all these pieces together because the world in many ways, it's a puzzle and it's yeah. a puzzle with, with, for us to, to figure out. And the more 
uh, data we can gather, and the more that we can pull those pieces together into some kind of story, first that we can tell ourselves and then that we can share in others, the better able we are to navigate this, uh, this world. And so for me, yes, I, I have background in the geopolitical world and in the science world and in, in the creative world, but in a lot of ways they're, they're connected. In 23 years ago, I was on the National Security Council. My then boss uh, and now very close friend, Richard Clark, at that time, he was sounding the alarm about issues like terrorism and cyber attacks. And this was four years uh, before 9-11. Right. Uh, and when 9-11 happened, his very prescient memo was on uh, President George W. Bush's desk saying Al-Qaeda is the threat, we have to go after bin Laden. And, and Dick always used to say that the key to effectiveness is to try to see things that other people don't see, because then you can start preparing for them. And um, that's why curiosity is so important, because if you're just seeing the thing that's right in front of your face, you're going to miss all these other these other things. And so for me, then 23 years ago, I just looked around, and I saw these little data points that told me the story that the genetics and biotech revolutions were going to change our lives. And I started acting upon that. And that led to a whole series of first educating myself about the science. I was just speaking a few months ago to 300 top scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And I said, you know, I'm here as a, as a guest of your director, um, and I'm going to talk to you about the future of biology. Um, but if you hear something that sounds wrong, please shout out and let me know because I'm entirely self-taught in science. And the last biology course I took was in tenth grade of, of high school. Obviously, I wouldn't say that if I didn't have a lot of a lot of uh, of confidence. But it was the, that curiosity, and then it was that curiosity. Um, that uh, forced me to ask the question, well, how does the world of science and genetics and biotech intersect uh, with the worlds that I already knew at that point of politics and, and geopolitics? And then when I was out talking about that intersection, um, I realized I wasn't getting through. People had a hard time listening to me. So I had already written my first novel and I realized I need. I realized I need to tell this story as a story because that's right. how we learn. That led me to my my sci-fi novels, Genesis Code and, and and Eternal Sonata. And then on the book tours for those, when I explained the science to people in my way as a, as a storyteller, I could see, oh, wow, they that they the got it. Yeah. yeah. And now we're in this moment where everybody's realizing how critical science is. First, understanding the biological threat we're facing, but also these incredible new tools of the genetics and biotech revolutions that are the key to getting us, or a key to getting us through this. So let, let's go to, to something here that I think is really interesting about, because you, know, you and I are talking here about the importance we believe of curiosity, but we're also seeing that the fifth estate which used to be so massively unbiased, you know, it was, you know, the media um, news, mainstream news was, was unbiased. You know, I grew up uh, as a kid in the UK, you know, the BBC was the standard, you know, and then you, then you got, you know, you got CNN and it was still pretty much up there. Uh, now, very few people trust the news. 
Um, it is sensationalized. I mean, even since the 90s, we've had the if it bleeds, it leads mentality. Uh, and we've, we've really become, um, in, you know, whether you're looking at CNN or you're looking at Fox or you're looking at Infowars or any of those things, it's fear porn. You know, that's where I call it, fear porn. Yeah, it's fear mongering. It's, it's, yeah, it's the same. When, I mean, I, I'm on CNN all the time, but I yeah. say always, I, I said, you guys know this is porn. It's anti-Trump porn. I probably agree with most of it. But sure. even the BBC, I, I, I listen on my Alexa to, to BBC in late at, late at nights, and it's not just one story. I mean, BBC is still trying to cover, cover the world. We're getting so locked into these micro narratives that it's hard to break out even of those narratives that we agree with. Well, yeah, I mean, I said to, to, to somebody recently, you know, um, if there's something good about COVID-19, it's that, that it stole the microphone from Donald Trump. Um, you know, because not everything is about Donald Trump right now. It, you know, people have a bigger concern and that's a, that is a good thing because it's, it's fascinating to me um, and I'm really interested in, in your point of view uh, because I want to talk about the virus itself, but I want to talk about implications because it's fascinating me um, because of your understanding of geopolitics that we went from being tribal and national to becoming global and as we've seen politically in the last 10 years-ish, you know, we've gone backwards and we've become more nationalist. We see it in Hungary, we see it in the Philippines, we see it in Brazil, you know, you know and Trump is minor comparatively in, in the extremeness of it, but not in the power of it. You know, we've seen these rise of the strongman authoritarian leadership, um, which has made people more nationalist. And even Germany, which is probably the most anti-nationalist country in the world because of its history, has even seen a massive rise. And this is, seems to be bringing people even smaller to now it's my family, I gotta protect my family. I'm concerned about the, 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 the fear of this and distancing us from the, from the planet and thinking in a planetary way. What's your thoughts on that? So on one hand, it's absolutely true that people are feeling very afraid Mm -hmm. um, they're hunkering down. We're all in our individual homes. Um, our countries are resurrecting these walls. I mean, in the United States, we have this caricature of our, of our silly wall with Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, but the border with, with Canada, um, our closest friend just shut down. The EU um, borders are going up. Um, and it reminds me of the Middle Ages at the time of the, of the Black Death. Exactly. Yeah. And like the Black Death, people said, all right, we better hunker down behind our walls because there's this threat out there, also a, a virus. But it turned out in the Black, at that time, the worst place you could be was inside that, that wall because that wall contained the virus. Yes. And if any country maybe the kind of most, even frankly, the most authoritarian countries like North Korea think that you can just build a wall and keep everything out. It's at least very difficult to do. So I spent this entire morning um, working on something I've been working on for um, this past week, um, 
which is drafting a, um, uh, a, um, a declaration of global interdependence. Because Wonderful. we are so connected to each other and the thought that we can solve the problem of a highly infectious pathogenic virus in one country alone without coordinating national efforts is insane. So yes, we're afraid, but one of the problems that we have is there's a total mismatch between the nature of our global challenges and whether it's these types of pathogens, climate change, oceans, mm -hmm. so many other things, and the way that we're organized to address them, which as states with kind of a minor overlay of international institutions. And so I think this, and I hope this can be a moment where we recognize that in addition to national politics, in addition to our international or multilateral institutions, we need a third leg of this stool, which is a political power group representing the common interests of humans, of our humanity. And we aren't organized for it. And then people think, well, that seems crazy. But we have 85% global literacy. Most mm -hmm. people on earth are connected to the information grid in one way or another. Like maybe now's the time we think about how do we build norms and structures and institutions and processes that can bring us together rather than divide us. Because people now are feeling afraid. But if you, if you asked anybody on earth, um, you say, well, wouldn't it be great if there was an international organization that had surveillance networks all around the world, when there was the first indication of some kind of pathogenic outbreak, they immediately sent an emergency response team to that place that worked with local officials and did everything possible to contain it. If it didn't work, they were well-funded and led an international effort to do bring the resources to bear to contain it where it is and to track it um, and to help people respond. People, people say like, yeah, don't we have something like that? And we say, well, yeah, well, we had the idea. We created the World Health Organization in 1948. Right. We didn't fund it, had this tiny staff. We cut its budget. Um, we restricted its maneuverability. Individual countries control a majority of its budget and determine exactly. what it can and can't spend for. Spend for. So, there's this mismatch and now we think, oh, geez, we better address this global problem. You know, the, the climate, our, we're, the, our earth is warming, our oceans are acidifying and nobody can take responsibility because we're not organized for it and we have to be. Yeah, um, but at the same time, Jamie, um, the levels of mistrust have also increased. Yeah. So people don't trust the World Health Organization. They don't yeah. trust the UN. They don't yeah. trust the things that were built, maybe initially um, with a lot of trust. Yeah. And now they don't trust them. Or right. they, they see corruption going on in different places and, and they just don't trust these things. And, you know, and as I talked about that, this is, this is fear mongering, it's, it's fear porn. Um, and we, you know, somebody talked about um, that we're not in an epidemic, that we're in an infodemic with uh, so much information. Yeah. There's misinformation, yeah. there's disinformation, there's far right blaming the left, there's left blaming the right. There's people talking about the ends of days and Christian prophecy and, uh, yeah. and that this is a human-made bioweapon. I mean, the, aside from anything else, the conspiracy theories, which... 
my bias, put my hand up, my bias. Uh, conspiracy theories, I believe every rumor has a grain of truth. I think there's something yeah. in there. Um, is it worth investigating? Yes, for me, because I'm very curious, but not for everybody, because I can actually do it fairly dispassionately, and when I can't, I pull out. But for many people, they go down that path and they never come out. So this is the both the advantage of what you're saying is like collaborative minds coming together to solve a problem, but the, the flip side of that coin is collaborative minds coming together to freak the hell out and freak yeah. everybody else out. Yeah. Why do you think there's so much, I mean, because you've got this background that's so unique. Why do you think there's so much conspiracy around this? Well, the one is because we don't know still the origins of this virus. So there was a great piece in Nature last week um, that did an analysis of that. And it came to the conclusion, which I agree with, um, that this is a naturally occurring virus, not yes. a, a manipulated virus. I think that's pretty convincing. The argument that they make is that if some bad actor um, was creating a virus designed to do mayhem, this is such an inefficient virus. Like if you wanted to manipulate a virus like this, you could, but you just would make it much more deadly than, the, uh, than this one is. And secondly, um, I have a lot of questions. I wouldn't agree that every um, uh, rumor has a grain of truth because okay. neither you nor I have horns, for example. Um, but really? <laughs> yeah, here I'll bet. I shaved mine um, off. What about exactly. you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but where this virus comes from, I mean, China has only one level four biosecurity virology lab. It happens to be in Wuhan. China has had all kinds of accidental security breaches in these types of yeah. labs. Um, is it possible that China, which has been the epicenter of these kinds of outbreaks, has very responsibly sought to identify what kind of viruses could pose future threats and had isolated um, and expanded those viruses in the secure environment of that lab to help develop vaccines and responses? Is it possible there was a leak in Wuhan because you know, got on somebody's clothes accidentally and they sure. walked out. Who knows? And when, when people don't know, then our curiosity, our minds yeah, sure. start generating, generating hypotheses. Now, when it comes to, uh, I want to put forward some things that I've been reading in my research from immunologists, from pulmonary experts, from specialists, not from, <laughs> not, not from uh, InfoWars. Um, yeah. But, you know, some of the real doctors and specialists, in, in, and one of the things that I read from a German uh, specialist, uh, Dr. Wolfgang, what was his last name? Woodhag, I think it was. Um, and it was actually in German. Um, and then there was a translation, fortunately for me. Um, but one of the things he talked about was, we're blowing this out of proportion at a level of panic because the, the, what he said was, um, if we go back one year and we do a autopsy on everybody who died, you're gonna find more than 90% of people have got coronavirus. It yeah. lives in most of us most of the time. And that we're not actually being killed by coronavirus, we're being killed by 
the um, the uh, whatever the existing uh, situation was inside of that body, but the coronavirus has has lowered the immune system, so you don't actually die from coronavirus. You die from whatever you had, and the coronavirus has repressed the immune system in the process. And so therefore he says the numbers of people who are actually dying from coronavirus are very small, and, but we still have to be very responsible because we can carry this to people who've got exist, pre-existing situations and people who have pre-existing situations they don't know about. So he's like, yeah. he was trying to remove some of the panic. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's plausible and just in the sense that if we had this level of awareness really of anything, I mean, it just, if we just, said malaria malaria is going to kill a lot of people and all of a sudden malaria was on top of mind people would say oh my god all these people are dying from from malaria we could do the same for car accidents we could do the same for tuberculosis and for a lot of things in this situation the problem is that we have to respond um, without a huge amount of information Right. And the only responsible way to respond is to assume the, the worst reasonable um, case scenario. Mm-hmm. And without a lot of information, that's really hard to do. The other thing is we are at this moment of zero risk mentality. I mean, so I think it's very, very smart. And I absolutely support closing the schools and, and taking these, these um, self-isolation measures now because the, if you put it, putting out a stove fire is easier than putting out a kitchen fire, easier than putting out a house fire yep. versus a fire versus a world fire. Um, but um, we just need to, to be very mindful that we have to balance over time our need to fight this virus, which we must, and our need for societies uh, to function because there are a lot of fears. We need to be vigilant. And that's why we need better institutions. I mean, we've decimated here in the United States, our public health infrastructure, Canada right. is, is better. People are feeling so insecure because here in, in the United States, um, we have a very unfair, uneven healthcare system. So people yeah. don't know what's going to, uh, going to happen to them. As I mentioned, we don't have a, su- a sufficient um, uh, pandemic surveillance network all of these kinds of things the the reason why we can be calm isn't that there aren't threats it's just that we society collectively has said we're going to manage them and we're going to build institutions of people who are managing them every, every day like if i if i knew every crime statistic from new york and i felt well there's no security I'd frankly be terrified, but I feel like, well, you'd be self-isolated. Yeah, yeah. It's true. I'd be here. Um, I pay my taxes. We have a police force. I meet with these guys and speak, sometimes speak to them. Um, and they, they're really competent. So they're doing their job so I can focus on doing my thing. But if you don't have that security in places where people like I, when I lived in Cambodia, people didn't have faith. Um, that they were safe, that the police or the military not only wouldn't protect them, but they thought they would victimize them. It really changes your mind space because you have to focus on those kinds of of threats, which we've now outsourced. Absolutely. Uh, And I want to, we're going to take a little break, but when I come back, I want to talk about the implications, uh, the implications of this, um, 
yeah, social science, um, but also economics.